I uh, cannot tell you how grateful I am for um, what this represents right here in the life of our convention uh, for uh, President Ezell and for Aaron and the leadership and just um, what this moment, what this conference means, uh, how honored and humbled I am to be a part of it. I feel like in many ways, and this is not just, you know, false humility, but I feel like I don't really, um, I don't really deserve to be a part of this discussion. Uh, I didn't, as Aaron mentioned, I didn't start out as a church planter. Uh, if anything, our church was more of a revitalization. Uh, church planning was not really that much on our radar screen when, uh, when, when the Summit Church really began to, to do what it did. Uh, in fact, in many ways, I, I felt like we kind of backed into church planting. Um, the church that I pastor is, is very close to several major college campuses, which means that we have a, a lot of college students that make up the attendance of our church in, in, on any given weekend, which uh, means a couple of things about us. Uh, number one, we are dirt poor as a congregation. Uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. In fact, I told the seminar this morning that uh, one of my favorite memories as a pastor is, uh, is in between two of our services, one of the ushers brings in an offering bucket, and in it was a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student uh, with a little note on it that says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I unto you. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we are dirt poor as a congregation, but we have a lot of uh, people who are asking how it is that their lives can be used for the mission of God and in the mission of God. And so uh, we have started to teach all of them that unless they have heard from God otherwise, they need to plan on spending a couple years um, after they graduate on one of our church planning projects around, uh, around the nation or around the world. Uh, we call that the Mormonization strategy of the Summit Church, which uh, has seemed to work for them. But uh, uh, that's what we're doing. I mean, they got to get a job somewhere, right? So why not get a job somewhere strategic in a place where the kingdom of God is at, at work? Uh, we teach them all that, you know, God didn't make you all to be church leaders and church planners. In fact, the number of people that God calls into the kind of ministry that most of us do is relatively small. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are not to leverage their lives for the kingdom of God. We tell them, do what you do well for the glory of God, and then do it somewhere strategic for the kingdom of God. Uh, I told our seminar this morning, that um, our breakout, that I feel like one of the most overlooked resources in uh, the, the, the Baptist church are the Baptist church members, just the regular people. Uh, you know, if you study the book of Acts, you find a very subtle but a very stubborn theme running through the book of Acts, and that is that some of the greatest advances of the gospel happen not through the apostles, they happen through regular people. Now, you study this, you see that the gospel, you know, some of the most significant events, like the conversion of Saul to Paul, that happened through the preaching of a layman. Uh, the gospel goes into most cities um, quicker through the hands of lay people than it does the apostles. Uh, Antioch is certainly that one, one of the most inspiring um, scenes. Uh, to me is at the end of, of the, uh, the book of Acts when, you know, Paul's been dead set on getting the gospel where, where Christ has never been named. So he sets his sights on Rome, the capital of the world. Acts twenty eight fifteen says that when he gets there, he is greeted by the, the brothers who had gotten there on the wings of business faster than he had as, a, as an apostle. And all that means that, that you know, if we, if we take a cue from the early church, it is as regular people are empowered to be a part of, of church planting. Um, that, that that's when it really begins to take off. And so I don't mean at all to downplay the role of, of figures like you and me. And I mean, we have a whole church planting residency designed to raise up church planters. But with each of these plants that we have, have sent out, we've also been able to send out between 20 and 30 um, people each. So the last five had about 20 to 30 each that would, would uproot their lives from Raleigh-Durham and go live in a new location and, and to, uh, to be a part of the core group of that church. This year we had a hundred of our, of our college seniors, graduating seniors, commit to, um, commit to living on one of these teams for the next two years. Um, I just think that we have to, 
to, to grab a hold of the possibility that God has put right within the church and say, you know, the calling to make disciples is not the sacred privilege of a select few. That is something on every disciple of Jesus. Uh, in fact, I feel like sometimes we've invented that whole language of calling to mask the fact that two-thirds of the people in our churches are not living as disciples of Jesus. Do what you do well for the glory of God, but do it somewhere strategic for the kingdom of God. And we as Southern Baptists have to get good again at teaching our people how to make disciples. You know, our people made disciples where they are, and if the pastors we sent out knew how to make disciples who made disciples, then in many ways church planning would take care of itself because we still have people leaving from our churches naturally who go out in all these places and can carry the gospel, uh, the gospel with them. Uh, and so I'm grateful for, 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 for the leadership, for the, the catalyzing nature that um, these guys are providing for us, and I feel like we've got great days that are, um, that are ahead of us. Um, what I want to talk with you about this afternoon is the vision that inspires all of that. Um, Aaron asked me to, to, to explain, to take a few minutes, take my time, and explain how the gospel was the source of both the vision and the power behind our mission. Here's kind of my thesis this afternoon. That effective sending, very simply, is the result of seeing Jesus properly. God called and empowered Isaiah to do impossible tasks simply by giving him one vision of who he was and what the gospel was all about. The strength to endure as a planter comes from seeing Jesus and understanding the promises of the gospel clearly. Planting can be so difficult that the only things that keep you going sometimes are the unchanging promises of the gospel. So I want to do my best for a few minutes just to pull back the curtain on Jesus' glory. And to let us look again for a few moments to consider the Jesus that gave the Great Commission so that we might feel its power and believe its promise. I want us to walk through one of the most mysterious places in all of Scripture, a place, honestly, I feel like I need to go into on my knees, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it to Mark chapter 14, which is the account we will be using, Mark chapter 14. And uh, brothers and sisters, I want us to pray. I want us to pray because this message, honestly, is not filled with a lot of practical wisdom or to-do list. If this message has any power at all, it's simply in God opening our eyes to see the majesty and the beauty of the Son of God. And y'all, if he doesn't do that, then I'm just wasting my breath and you're wasting your time. But see, ultimately, it is this vision and it is this vision alone that enables everything. The power in Christian ministry comes from the sight of what Isaiah saw and what God in Jesus Christ wanted his apostles to see. So let's pray. And I would ask you to join me in prayer that God would open your eyes anew and afresh to see some things about our glorious Savior and the Son of God. Father, I can't explain the concepts. Anybody can do that. But God, only you can open the eyes. God, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we might know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God that is given for us in Christ. That, God, I might worship again as I walk through this passage that my brothers and sisters may tremble and quake as we walk through this holy place, the Garden of Gethsemane. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Honestly, this is one of those places where I feel like everything that I can say and do falls so far short of what's actually happening. We really ought to just tremble before. Mark 14, 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not I, what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch even one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he lifts up his eyes, and they look with him, and there is... Judas with a garrison of soldiers there to take him to be crucified. The first thing we have to acknowledge about this passage is that it is mysterious because, quite frankly, Jesus does not die in the courageous, defiant way that many of the the world's other great heroes die. I mean, a lot of our greatest heroes, heroes have died with a brazen defiance of authority. Think for a minute of Gladiator or Braveheart. That's how most Jewish heroes in the Old Testament died. They put their fist in the face of the empire and they said, you don't scare me. I'll never back down. God is more powerful than you. When Greek and Roman men died, heroes died, they were always cool and stoic like Socrates drinking the hemlock. Plato records that as as he was taking the hemlock, he was calm. His color didn't change. He even cracked a few jokes before his death. Defiance. Even many of Jesus' followers would die in the same way. Polycarp. The student of the Apostle John. History tells us that when they came to take him, he went calmly. When asked, when asked what he would like to say before he burned at the stake, he looked out at this entire audience and he said, you think I'm afraid of this fire? It burns for just a minute and I'm gone. You should be afraid of the fires of hell. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. Come on, boys, bring on the fire. And that's how many of the world's great heroes died. But here, again, if you just look at it on the surface, Jesus appears weak even scared. What's really strange about this is that everywhere else Jesus had shown unflinching courage in the face of danger. And right before this, Jesus' disciples are telling him he's crazy for going to Jerusalem because he's sure to be in danger. But Mark says that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus has always been the bold, always been the brave one. And it's not like he's withering in the face of pain because not even the first aspect of torture has begun. Verses 33 and 34, there's a very strange phrase that says, he began to be astonished and troubled. In Greek, literally, he suddenly, at one moment, he began, he suddenly began to be astonished. In other words, Jesus suddenly saw something in verse 33 that wasn't there in verse 32. And it stunned him. He suddenly began to be distressed. It says he was troubled by it. That word troubled is a very strong Greek word that means overcome with shocking horror. Greek scholars say that it, the word carries something of the horror that you would feel if you came home one evening to find your, your family and your children murdered and just strung up on the wall. That horror is what is in that Greek word. It's what Jesus felt in verse 33. He saw something that horrified him. And the sight of it almost made him die. 
See verse 34, then he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Jesus is not one to exaggerate. He's not, a, not somebody to exaggerate what he's going through or his pain. I almost died looking into that. Luke says he sweat great drops of blood, a medical condition called hematridosis. Were you under such distress that your capillaries burst? One of our pastors on our staff a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, he and his wife and his three sons were at the the pool, and they were packing up, getting ready to go, and she turned around thinking they were all out, and she saw what is any parent's absolute horror. Her son was missing, and he was on the bottom of the pool. They jump in, they get him out, they manage to resuscitate him, they rush him to the hospital. He's he's fine now, but, but our pastor said that he says, you look, when I looked at my son, when I first saw him there, he said his face was all, had all these little purple dots all over it. And I asked the doctor, what's wrong with him? He said, your son was so terrified at the bottom of the hole. He's three years old that he was, he was in, under such distress that the capillaries in his face burst. That's how much strain he was under. And any parent in this room that fills you with horror, the idea that your child would be in that kind of terror. The son of God The son of God who created everything with a word was under such anguish that the capillaries in his face burst under the strain. The word Gethsemane Gethsemane literally means oil press. That's what's happening. The stress of being afraid is so great that his blood is already flowing out of him before the first nail is driven. Jesus, Jesus, the son of God, the guy who spoke onto the canvas of nothingness and everything appeared at once. The one who walked on water, calmed storms, cast out demons, raised people from the dead, sees something that scares him so badly that he almost dies. And it makes him stagger. Notice he prays, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove it. He calls God Abba, Daddy, the term of closest intimacy with God. But what is the response? There is no response. You see, up until this point, Jesus has enjoyed an intimacy with the Father. He often withdrew to be alone with God to draw strength. And the Father had always radiated with openness to him, sometimes even affirming him publicly. But now, in the hour he needs it most, there is nothing. So he stumbles back to his disciples, and they are asleep. He wakes them up, and he says, guys, I need you to be with me. He needs somebody. The Father isn't there. Something tender, almost weak, isn't there in in what's happening? Verse 39, he goes back again to the Father, and he says the exact same thing, and again, there is no response. What's happening? What is happening? I agree with Bill Lane, the New Testament scholar, who says that the only explanation is that God has already begun to turn his face away. The crucifixion has already started before the first nail was driven into his body. Jesus' soul had been abandoned by God. Jesus had lived his life for the approval of the Father, and now, in the moment Jesus needed him most, God had turned his face away, and he staggers under the weight of it. Bill Lane says, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Utter aloneness. Have you ever felt really alone? Maybe you were abandoned by a friend or betrayed. Or maybe it came from the loss of a a loved one, a parent, a child, or a spouse died, and you just felt so utterly alone like a piece of your soul had been ripped away. 
Here is Jesus who had known the perfect fellowship of the Trinity for all of eternity, now utterly alone. And it was more than just aloneness, there was rejection. Have you ever experienced rejection by someone that you care about, from someone you care about? I know one thing, that the closer the relationship, the greater the pain of rejection. Every once in a while, as pastors, I know you deal with this too, I get a letter from somebody that I don't know at all who comes to our church, visits one time, and basically tells me I'm the worst person they've ever heard or seen, and how could I live with myself as a human being? And those things do not phase me at all, because I do not know them, they do not know me, it's just hate mail. But then you have somebody who loves you and knows you that turns their back on you. That is when rejection hurts. I've always been very close with my father. My father's always been my, my biggest fan in the things that I'm doing. And to think that he would come to a point where he say, I don't even know you. I turn my back on you. You, you, you I, I can't look at you. If it is devastating for me to lose a father's love, a love that is limited, that I've only known for a few years, what is it like to lose the infinite love of the father that you have known from all of eternity? C.J. Mahaney says that we can try to come up with an analogy for how this must have felt for Jesus, but at the end, we just cannot do it. There are no human analogies. There is nothing with which we can compare it. There is nothing that can help us understand. Anything human we come up with takes away from the bitterness and the tragedy of this moment. Somehow in that one moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in a godless, fiery hell for us. One of the songs that we love to sing, we say that chorus, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And there's probably nothing that we ever sing that has more truth in it than that phrase. Jesus in Gethsemane stared into the horror of hell, the cup of God's wrath, and it overwhelmed him. It was always explained to me that what made Jesus' death so bad were the physical horrors. And they were terrible. We get the word excruciating from the Latin word for cross. You know the details of the beating and the whipping. And based on what we know about Roman beatings, it was not uncommon for the cat of nine tails to grab a rib and send it flying off of a man's frame. We're almost certain that when the beating was finished, he was at least partially disemboweled. The prophet Isaiah said he was beaten to a point that it didn't even look like a man, unrecognizable. He was nailed up on a cross, naked in a public place in the full light of day. I think it was Cicero that said that one of the Romans' goals in in the crucifixions were utter humiliation. That's why they chose a public place. For us, it would be like the mall. Because they would put them outside so that everybody passing by would see these men in such anguish. It was so painful that men would weep and vomit and urinate all over themselves. Cicero said that sometimes Romans would crucify women when they really wanted to make a point. But they would do it backwards. They would, they would turn the woman around so they couldn't see her face because they could not stand to see the anguish on a woman's face as she was crucified. Yes, the physical horrors were terrible, but as bad as those were, listen, that is not what made Jesus stagger in Gethsemane. The physical pain was not the horror of the cross for him. It was the abandonment by God that he faced. That's what the horror of hell is, utter abandonment by God. So twice Jesus prays to the Father, Daddy, let this cup pass from me. And twice he's met by silence. God had determined to save us, and this was the only way. He had to drink the cup of God's condemnation to the dregs. He had to be made sin for us who knew no sin, so that then we could become the righteousness of God in him. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who compared it to a dam breaking loose. Imagine you were standing in front of, say, the Hoover Dam out 
out west, and as you're standing there, maybe you're a mile and a half back from it, to your horror, you see the thing begin to split down the middle, and, and before you can, can say or do anything, this wall of water comes through that dam and comes rushing at you several hundred feet high. Death is certain. It will sweep you away. You do not have a chance. But right before that, 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 that wave comes and, and sweeps you into eternity, the ground in front of you opens up, and all that water goes underground, and not a drop touches you. Edward said that what Jesus did is he stood in the way of God's wrath and drank every single drop of God's wrath into his own body. He became sin for us and experienced an eternity of hell on the cross so that he would take the cup of God's wrath, drink it to the dregs, turn it over and say, it is finished one time forever and all. That is what Gethsemane was for Jesus. Now here's what it means for us as we consider the mission. Two very quick things. Number one, we should stand amazed at Jesus' love for sinners. We should stand amazed at Jesus' love for sinners. The cross, Paul says, puts on display the love of God for the world. In fact, when you think about it, it was dangerous for God to give Jesus a glimpse of this before he was on the cross, don't you think? I mean, why didn't God wait until Jesus was secured to the cross and then show him all this? Why did God show it to him in Gethsemane? Again, Jonathan Edwards. It was so Jesus could go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience, so that his love for us would be put on display even more. Because God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, he chose to die for us. All of this shows God's love for you. God turned his back on his most beloved son because God so loved the world. And this was the only way to save it. Had I been there and I tried to stop Jesus, he would have said to me, no, J.D., this cup is your cup. There is no other way. He drank every last drop so that I could drink the cup of salvation. One of the accounts says that an angel in Gethsemane came to minister to him. I've often wondered, what, what did the angel say? How did the angel minister? I mean, did he, you know, give him, a, give him a John Piper book, give him a passion CD or something like that and listen to this? We don't know. It just doesn't tell us. But I wonder if Hebrews 12, too, gives us an answer. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of what? The joy of what? What was he looking forward to? What was it that Jesus would have after the cross that he didn't have before? What would he obtain on this side of the cross that he didn't have on that side? The approval of God? The adoration of the Father? Already had that. Kingship of the universe? Already his. The adoration of angels had it from all eternity. What is the one thing that he would have after the cross that he did not have before? You. You, me. He was doing this to save you. We were his inheritance. For the joy of reconciling you and me to himself, he endured the cross. The apostle Peter says that we were his precious treasured possession. The word precious means that something is so valuable to you, you would give up anything for it. I have four children. They're nine, six, four, and two. They are precious to me, which means there's nothing I would not give for them if it would save their life. If a doctor told me one of your children has a disease and they're not going to make it, but there's a medicine that can cure them, but, but it's so new that insurance won't pay for the medicine. You're going to have to sell everything you have and mortgage the rest of your life. You will be in debt forever, but this medicine will save your child without a second thought at all. I'll give up all of it to be able to save my kids because they are precious to me. The God who owned all of the universe thought of you as precious, and he gave up the universe to reconcile you and me. 
Number two, let this vision be your power for mission. Let this vision be your power for mission. I, I think we must read the Great Commission through the lens of Gethsemane. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The God who says go is the Savior of Gethsemane. Gethsemane shows you how, shows you how he feels about sinners. Is there anything too great to ask him to do? Is there any request that we would give that would exhaust the limits of his love? John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, says, Thou art coming to a king, so with thee large petitions bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. I think it was Alexander the Great, the story was told about him, that he had a general. And general had done something that, that, that he approved of, and so he told his general, he knew the general had a daughter who was about to get married, and he said, I'll tell you what, I would like for the Greek empire, I'd like for, I would like to pay personally for your daughter's wedding. And so the general was grateful and goes off and plans the wedding, turns in the receipts to Alexander the Great's treasurer, and the treasurer comes to Alexander and says, I, I, I know that you agreed to pay for this guy's wedding, but I don't think you had any idea what he was going to do. I mean, he's got, I think all of Greece is coming to this wedding. He's got thousands of invitations. This is going to cost tons of money. And I think you need to discipline your general who is presumed upon your generosity. And as the story goes, Alexander kind of pondered for a minute. He said, no, give him everything he's asking for, everything, because my general pays me two compliments. Number one, he thinks that I am rich enough to be able to afford this kind of wedding. And number two, he thinks I'm generous enough that I would give it to him, and that honors me. Again, John Newton, thou art coming to a king, so with thee large petitions bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Do the size of your prayers match the size of his sacrifice? Does the scale of your dreams match the scale of his suffering? Do not insult his sacrifice through small dreams and weak expectations. That is not what he died for. He did not die so the church could remain faithful in regress. He did not die so that we could maintain our position. He died so that we could see communities of worshipers emerge in every people group on every city on earth to lead the church always triumphant more than conquerors. He's the one who spoke the Great Commission. He says, all authority is given to me. Is there anything God will not give for the sake of Jesus? Isaiah 53, 11 says that God would see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. Do you understand how satisfied God is with the work of his son? And do you understand what it does to him when you hold up his son's sacrifice in front of him? God looked down from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That was before the crucifixion. Is there anything that God will not give to him now? I remember one time news came back from a part of the, the world, part of the world that we were, were interested in and we were trying to see some things. There was a martyr, a Christian martyr over there and the story was beautiful and it was tragic. And I remember praying to God and I said, God, after the beauty of that, I mean, that person laid down their life and they did it willingly to be able to see this people come to know you. Would you now, now God, would you open their hearts because of this one who's laid down their life and I'm not one of the kind of guys that God's always, I feel, always feel like God's speaking to me in, in dreams and visions, but this is one of those moments where God, in my heart, says something very unmistakable. It says, do not ever insult the work of my son by thinking that I would be motivated by a martyr when my son has already shed his blood for that people that you're asking about. 
Yes, God is moved by the death of the saints. Yes, he is moved by sacrifice. But there is one sacrifice that has been given for every people group on earth. And it is in the name of that sacrifice that we go boldly knowing that God will do what God said God would do. Because he told the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. There are still 6,640 some unreached people groups in the world. He has purchased the right to be known in every one of them. Sociologists say that the church is shrinking fastest in the south the southern part of the United States. He has earned the right for us to ask the Father to reverse that. Not through great leaders, but simply because of the worthiness of Jesus. All authority has been given to him and for him. Pastor, Jesus did not die to give us big churches or make our names famous. I told the seminar this morning that one of the defining moments in my life was after I was a pastor there in Raleigh-Durham for a few years, I was praying that God would do something in Raleigh-Durham like he had never done before, that he would send an awakening and a revival that we would talk about for years afterwards. And again, it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit just illuminated something in my heart, and it basically was this. All right, what if I say yes to your prayer? What if I say yes that I'm going to send an awakening and a revival in Raleigh-Durham that they will talk about for the next 300 years? But what if I don't use your church to do it? What if it passes you by? What if somebody else gets famous? What if somebody, else churches, somebody else's church grows? You still want it then? I would love to tell you that I said an unqualified yes, but I knew that wasn't the truth. Somehow in all this mix of thy kingdom come, it's, half of it's about my kingdom come. Pastor, how dare we take so great a sacrifice and make it about us? What if the reason God did not answer our prayers for revival is because deep down they have as much to do with self-exaltation as they do Jesus' glory? When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' willingness to save is limitless. He always shocked people with how willing he was to heal. You couldn't come to him. You couldn't touch the hem of his garment as he went by without healing flowing out of him. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. There's no shortage of power or compassion in him. There is no disconnect between the power of God and the mission of God. The disconnect is always between the leader and the glory of God. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like, I'm sure as pastors you do weddings a lot, and there's that moment where the back door's open, and then she stands there, that beautiful bride, and you've got a groom and you've got a best man. And you know that she comes down, and that, that bride's eye is always locked on those groom's eyes, and it's simultaneously a beautiful and really awkward moment all at once. And everybody's kind of looking around because you, you I mean, there's a, there's a, imagine you're, you're the groom and imagine as that door opens and your bride comes in, your best man who's been appointed by you as a faithful friend to make sure the wedding goes off okay. As he's walking down, he's making eyes at her. He's trying to direct her attention toward him. He's trying to flirt with her a little bit. What are you going to do? You're going to turn around and punch him in the throat, right? Because he's there to serve the groom, but instead he's redirecting the attention of the bride onto himself. What is it like for the pastor to redirect the attention that Jesus deserves, that he has purchased, that he's worthy of, and to think more about what I'm looking like and what people are saying about me in it? The power of God is for those whose sole passion is the glory of Jesus. You see, there's an inherent kingdom-mindedness in sending. Sending will never gain you the earthly honor that having a large church will. I mean, you know, Kevin Ezell will, will thank you and your name will get on some list somewhere, but you will never have the glory in sending on earth that you do from having a large church. But God honors it with his presence and his power because all authority has been given to the Son for the glory of the Son. Which leads me to the last phrase there. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There is a special promise for those that are engaged in the mission. 
The Jesus of Gethsemane goes with them and he works through them. And in that promise, by the way, I think is an implicit warning. If we depart from that mission, if we lose that objective, if that fails to become or remain our obsession, we lose that presence. It is only as we go to the ends of the earth that his presence remains with us. That is why this is a matter of life and death for our convention. If we do not join Jesus in church planting all over our nation and all over the world, his days of presence in the SBC are over. And if our churches do not engage in this mission, the days of his presence among us are numbered. What we most need, what God gave to Isaiah, what he gave to his apostles, what he gives to us is a vision of Jesus. You see Jesus properly, church planting takes care of itself. Charles Spurgeon said, show me a Christian soaked in the blood of Jesus with the stench of hell in his nostrils, and I'll show you a Christian who does not need to be compelled to do evangelism. He could no sooner cease doing that than he could cease breathing. Listen, Spurgeon said to the voice of the Lord, speak, I will help you. It is a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've already done. What? Not help you. I bought you with my blood. What? Not help you. I died for you. Since I have done the greater, will I not also do the less? Your requests are nothing compared with what I'm willing to give. When we see Jesus clearly, our mission will be clear. Our priorities will be set. The controversies will die down. The egos will be set aside and the power will be abundant. When we see the gospel properly, church planting will take care of itself. The gospel is the root. Church planting is the fruit. You do not focus on fruit production by focusing on the fruit. You focus it by deepening the root. And if we as Southern Baptists re-engage, re-plant, go deeper into the gospel, then church planting, planting among the nations just comes as naturally to us as breathing or as roses on a rose bush. It's the gospel. Go deep in the gospel, brothers and sisters. Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray. You are as real today as you were 2,000 years ago when you walked through this dark chapter. And Lord Jesus, you've told us to lift our eyes to you, the Lord of the harvest, because they are white unto harvest. Lord Jesus, we are powerless before you. There is nothing we can do. You build your church. (coughs) The Lord Jesus, our eyes are upon you to ask God in your mercy, not because of our righteousness, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our past and our glorious traditions, because they all are like filthy rags, but solely because of your mercy and solely because of the people that your blood was shed to purchase to yourself. Will you make us great again? Make us great again for the purpose of the nations. God, we ask for a greatness to be at work within us, not for ourselves, but for the glory of Jesus and for the sake of those that he died to save. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.